This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for February 17th, 2022, the Angry Parents Edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm right here in Washington, D.C., I'm joined, as always, by John Dickerson of CBS's Sunday Morning from New York. Hello, John. Hello, David. And Emily is out. I don't know where she is. I yeah. never know where anybody is. I don't even know. She's like, she was She was texting me the, last night. But is she on the show? No. So, mysterious. Doesn't matter. Well, just because she's not on the show doesn't mean she's expired. <laughs> <laughs> I, I all I know is she's driving somewhere that takes a long time. That's what I've been told. Oh, that's oh, good. Good wow. to know. Here's Josie Duffy Rice, beloved Gabfest regular, a writer in Atlanta. Hello, Josie. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Thank you for having me. You're not driving anywhere. I'm driving There's... nowhere. I don't like to drive. So well, Atlanta will cure you of wanting to drive anyway. That's very true. <laughs> We're not the best drivers. That's for sure. The worst accident, in, in that it was the most expensive accident of my life, it happened in the 24 hours I once drove in Atlanta. The only time I've ever driven in Atlanta, I got into a, just a stupid, tiny little accident that was hideously expensive. My so. husband, who's from L.A., is constantly shocked that there isn't just a wreck every two blocks in Atlanta. He says we're the worst drivers he's ever seen. This week, we will not be talking about driving at all. We are going to talk about anger, though, and why parents are so angry about so many things, but mostly about schools. Then, how much trouble are the Democrats in now and in November, and how much trouble is Joe Biden in? And then we're going to talk about the gun liability settlement in the Sandy Hook case and whether that, that uh, settlement could weaken the gun industry. Plus, of course, we're going to have cocktail chatter. So... Parents seem to be really angry. I'm a parent. I'm not that angry, but like I don't have as much to be angry about. But some parents are angry about mask mandates in schools. Some parents are angry that their kids are being taught about America's racist history. Some parents are angry that their kids' schools keep closing. Some are angry that there are books in their school library by Toni Morrison. Some are angry about people using a bathroom at school that they don't think they should use. So, Josie, there are a lot of different currents in this. Is there an underlying? Is there is there a single theme to all of this, or is this really a whole bunch of different things that are all coalescing at this moment? I think one of the themes is entitlement, but I wouldn't say that just parents have entitlement. So I don't know that that's specific to them. I do think that what I'm seeing a lot of is what starts out with not wanting your children masked um, has really kind of spiraled into all of these other issues that real communities, and I think mostly of white suburban moms, are being radicalized by these three things, right? Masks, school closings, and and critical race theory. I mean, to see it in real time is kind of mind-blowing. I know many 
I, I know or know of many women who were very supportive of Biden, big Biden, you know, big Democrats, big, big progressives just a year and a half ago, and are now have take done a 180. A lot of it is rooted in not wanting their children masked in schools. I can understand why you don't want your children masked in schools. My kid's masked at school every day. He doesn't really seem to mind, but kids are different. When people say kids are resilient, I get kind of annoyed because kids are different. They're like anybody else. And some kids are probably resilient about it and some are not. And I'm sure that like it's not equally easy on all kids. But first of all, it's a public health measure. What can you do? You can't get rid of COVID. But second of all, it just is so bizarre to me how that has morphed into and by the way also I don't want my kids learning about race and it, it is I am seeing that I mean it is happening that way people said 53 percent of white women voted for Trump and that number sounded huge compared to Hillary Clinton I think that what we're going to see in the midterms is going to dwarf that truly John what do you think the, the the Republicans are clearly having a great time politically with this they're Bills in almost every state where Republicans control legislatures, there are bills to, uh, you know, create snitch lines to report teachers who are teaching critical race theory, there to allow lawsuits against teachers, laws to ban talking about sexual orientation or gender identity inappropriately, um, desires to ban books in a lot of states. And these appear to be Glenn Youngkin here in Virginia is, you know, going all out about various school issues that have teachers quite on edge but do seem to be politically very popular. Do you, how much of this do you feel is like grassroots frustration and rage and how much of it is political opportunism or is it the one building on the other? So there's what's happening on the right, which is, um, which is what, what we've been talking about so far. Then there's the broader irritation parents have had with school boards, which is left and right. We got to kind of pull it apart because on the left, you don't have it bleeding into the questions about what's being taught in school as much, either with bathrooms or because when you look at it on the right, it's full of all of the worst parts of our politics right now. So in Loudoun County in Virginia, the rage over the um, transgender bathrooms is based on a willful misunderstanding and a willful misleading about a set of facts about a case that took place before the bathrooms were even uh, labeled transgender. And so there's a whole bunch of messiness in certain cases. But on the left, it's also been a revolt against uh, school administrators who who don't seem to have the kids' um, mental health sufficiently in mind and have kept the schools closed. So what that does is it messes all of this together, and it deprives Democrats of a strong argument against arguments being made by the right. And so I think it's both grassroots, and then um, Republicans are extremely effectively using the mask issue to touch on a longstanding, I mean, if you look at the Scopes trial, mm-hmm. right, William Jennings Bryan appealed to the Christian parents of the state, right? That that has been a long time part of politics. And masks goes to that group, which is the group that's um, been most energized by critical mm-hmm. race theory and teaching of the wrong kind of books and changing of bathrooms. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget this issue on the left, too, because you say, John, I mean, the the big issue, the big episode this week, if anything, was on the left, where in San Francisco, three school board members were recalled. That They were called as many as they could and overwhelmingly recalled in an election in which the, the voting was not by a bunch of Trumpist right wingers. It was a lot of urban parents who were Democrats who were just infuriated with the incompetence of a school board that had kept their schools closed didn't have plans, 
spent huge amounts of time on a quixotic and ultimately deeply flawed effort to rename a bunch of schools, including one named after Abraham Lincoln. And you can understand why parents of all stripes were infuriated in San Francisco when you start to read about what was happening there. Um, do you think, Josie, that 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 John's point, John's getting at something here when he says that the unhappiness among all parents is allowing Republicans to make hay because Democrats don't have an effective counter argument politically about this. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that like any time that you are the party sort of restricting, right, liberty, like not necessarily liberty, but anytime that you're making life harder for parents, which right now, if you're tech, if you're thinking about COVID restrictions would be the left, like, I understand that this is an opportunity for the right. But I also think it presents this really interesting question about how much when you especially when you put your children in public school, how much control do you have as a parent and should you have as a parent? What does it mean to parent? What does it mean to try to control what your children learn versus how your children behave? Um, who knows best? And I, I have all these friends that are one of my one of my best friends is a, a teacher in in New York, and she's she's not coming back next year, and she's an incredible teacher. And but just the way. And she says a lot of it is the parents. I mean, a lot of it is the the difficulty of trying to teach every day, stay as healthy as possible, make up for all the other teachers that are out with COVID because they haven't, you know, they're because we haven't done an effective job of keeping teachers safe enough. And then dealing with parents being mad about what's being read or written or, you know, it's just so such an unsustainable problem to me because this is the nature of education. Your children have to process information that you're not necessarily comfortable with, uh, but there have to be limits to that too. So you just, I mean, these are hard questions. I think that like what I'm seeing from a lot of parents does not seem hard to me, but I understand that the fundamental balance here is really difficult. Uh, also with with involvement comes some level of responsibility. I mean, if and and those seem misaligned. Mm-hmm. That, and and the responsibility is to learn and think about pedagogy. And and I'm now talking a little bit di- outside of the question of masking or not masking or opening schools or not opening schools. Right. But in terms of what and how kids are exposed to certain ideas. Right. And uh, and and I'm not sure that everybody's fulfilling their responsibilities in terms of educating themselves when they're participating, at least based on what I read and see at some of these school board meetings. I just want to make a couple of points about this. Both of you have said smart things. I mean, there is this, parents have this desire to control their children's mind space. And there is this fear that the world is full of dangerous ideas and that children are going to be exposed to those dangerous ideas. But the truth, like, as we all know from our own school experience, is that, like, very little about what you were taught in school, like, very few of the sort of facts or particular books actually shape you. It's much more like the vibe of the school. It's like, you're, were you taught in a place where there's joy, where your teachers had a high expectations of you? Was it a disciplined or undisciplined by the nature of the kids around you? It's not really like, is there a particular book that you were taught that is that has reshaped your worldview? Occasionally that happens. But really, it's much more like, what have teachers brought you. And so that this I think there's a fallacy thinking like oh if we just get this particular idea out of the school our kids will be safer. No, it's much more about like what is the feeling of the school. Mm-hmm. Um but then I the the other two quick points I want to make is one is going to what you were saying Mindigo Josie 
parents have been cooped up. They've been frustrated. Everyone has been blah, blah, blah. They feel justified in acting crazy because they feel they are protecting their children. And when you're protecting your children, you have a moral license. You have moral freedom to be crazy because it's you're protecting the children. Yeah. And it just it, 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 it like in, entitles a form of grotesque behavior that you'd never permit if you say, oh, it's, you know, the you, we're talking about something which isn't my children. But with, if it's my children, I can do that. And that's, I think that's dangerous. Yeah. I, I also just want to say that, especially when we're talking about what we're learning in schools, we're talking about white parents. We're actually not. And, and, and that conversation, the fact that we keep saying parents, not 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 this group, but in general, the conversation is about parents. And it's, you know, there, <laughs> there is an entire group of parents in this country that are not white and that are not upset about their, you know, most of them, at least the vast, vast majority are not upset about their children learning about, about Toni Morrison or hearing, I, I was listening to a woman in Virginia mad that they, her, someone in her kid's class was insulting Andrew Jackson. You know, these are, this, this is a particular kind of cultural divide that is both racial and political and partisan, I should say. I was trying to think back of times my parents got mad when I was a student. And I think there were two. One was when we learned about Eli Whitney, who made the cotton gin, who my mom wanted to make very clear that it's actually his slave who invented the cotton gin, and he got credit for it. And the other, I don't remember what it was, but something upset my dad. But not they they didn't insist we didn't learn about it anymore, right? They, they what they did was tell the teacher there and her, you know, what they thought was accurate information, and then tell me at home. And I remember what they told me, not what I learned in school. You know, that's your responsibility as a parent to pr- help your child process information that they learn elsewhere. I think and deal with tough stuff and answer hard questions. This insistence on making everything. Rosie, for your children, is so unhealthy to me, besides the fact that it's bad for the country. It's bad for your kids. Also, the asymmetry of concern. You've had generations of inequality and ongoing systemic inequality for people of color in America, and there is a low level of concern. Mm -hmm. When you look at what is the greater yeah, injustice. You know, systemic problem mm-hmm. in America. You, you, uh, it would be possible. Obviously, I'm projecting, but I mean, it would be possible to look at the upset over um, masks and think, why weren't you yeah. one one hundredth as upset mm-hmm. when you know there are generations right. of kids not learning anything? Um, I, one other thing I would add is that Clara Jeffrey, the editor in chief of Mother Jones, wrote a piece about what happened in San Francisco, and in reading the absolute repeated. Um, mistakes of those school board members. It strikes me that, you know, we talk a lot about how conservatives don't have the investment in the government project that liberals do. Liberals believe collective action can improve the lives of people. You would not come to that uh, conclusion after reading Claire's piece, which is about basically the mismanagement and inability to sort priorities in in the middle of a pandemic. I thought it was quite good. It is a really good piece. I have one final question for you guys which is do you think there's anything i i was i'm going to posit my theory my theory is that what we've seen uh in the last couple of years is a tremendous upsurge of white dudes you know feeling their power and a lot of the protest movement it's not that women haven't been involved but it's basically been a bunch of white guys who are storming the capital who are Mm -hmm. uh being proud boys and oath keepers and and uh, saying horrible things um, 
and it's in it and the the movement of of the sort of white nationalist trumpist republican party is very white guy uh white guys having fun vibe and i feel like that what we see in these school protests there's certainly men involved but this is a place where women are now getting involved that the 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 anger that women feel about things in their life or in in their their frustrations are is coming out because schools are a, a much more female space. Mm-hmm. It's a place where women who are frustrated and radicalized can take the lead, where their leadership is expected and it's it's more standard. And I feel like that some of what's happening here is that oh, this is now the space where women, radicalized women, are having their moment and they're having it in schools. I that's that's certainly what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a lot of moms. And I you know, I think there's this other problem here which is when I was in school, there was so much I didn't learn about. Like I, I there were so many things that when I went to college, I was like I had no idea about this, right? Just events throughout history and mostly of American brutality, of American imperialism, of American war. But it's very hard to fight what a kid isn't learning about. It's so much easier to fight what they are learning about, which, by the way, is also part of the conservative project. To ignore history, to not actually have to grapple with mistakes we've made uh, is also part of the conservative project. And so it is both this this mom's thing I, at, on one hand, and then I think on the other hand, it's just the the nature of information asymmetry and who it benefits and who it doesn't um, and what kind of fights it engenders uh, when we're talking about a specific thing versus the absence of a thing. For a long time, when women were shut out of politics, either officially or just the power structures of politics, there were lots of women's groups who were involved in in changing policy. And I wasn't saying I wasn't saying that women weren't or shouldn't be involved in politics. That was not what I was saying at all. I just meant that that schools are such a historically female space and leadership in school organizations is so female and teachers are so female like disproportionately that it's not that it's interesting that 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 this is where female radicalization or women's women's radicalization could take Mm -hmm. place more easily because they're not going to be proud boys Mm -hmm. right right no i know i'm just saying that in other like in 1938 when they were when they were protesting the expansion of the federal government all the the leaders of the groups that were coming to washington were all led by women it didn't have anything to do with schools that's my that was my see i didn't know that Um, no one taught me that in school yeah Slate Plus members, you lucky ducks, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. We do an extra segment every week just for Slate Plus members, and it's usually a place we uh, let our inner freak flag fly, John Dickerson especially. Uh, This week's Slate Plus segment, we're going to talk about hiding. Where did we hide as kids? Where do we hide now? Why did we hide? I don't really know why we're talking about this, but it's such a great subject. It's a, it's, I'm, I'm, feel inspired so become a slate plus member get this bonus segment and so much else you can also get member exclusive episodes on shows like slow burn and amicus you get no ads on podcasts unlimited reading on the slate site and of course you're supporting the work that we do so please go to slate.com slash gabfest plus and become a member this episode of the gabfest is sponsored by aura frames are you ready to win mother's day cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. 
And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. How much trouble are the Democrats in? Polling finds Joe Biden deeply unpopular. He's disliked overwhelmingly by Republicans. He's disliked a lot by independents. Uh, or disliked is the wrong term. They're not, they're not feeling good about his presidency. The country as a whole is quite bummed by inflation and the pandemic. And Biden hasn't been able to convey good news, the news about job growth and economic growth, in a way that people feel it. Democratic members of the House are quitting in droves. We're expecting the most this cycle since, uh, I think, 1978, maybe, the largest number of Democratic retirements by current members. So, John... What's going on? Do the Democrats have any play here? Is there any move they can make that is helpful to them politically? History's against them, right? With only two exceptions, 98 and 02, the president's party has lost House seats in every midterm since World War II. Biden's approval rating is below 50%. When that happens, the party in power loses 37 seats. The president's party has lost an average of 26 seats, regardless of the president's approval rating since World War II. So, like, history is coming down on him hard. And the problem is that the president ran on whipping COVID and reality caused problems. And even though reality was a variant and recalcitrance from an ideological portion of the country to get vaccinated that made it worse, that it doesn't matter. It still hurts the guy in power and his party in power. You also have a split within the Democratic Party over some of the issues we've been talking about. There's a lot of depression in the Democratic Party, although interestingly in polling, Democrats are less depressed with Joe Biden right now than they were Barack Obama in 2010. Not by a lot, but they were a little bit more depressed with, with President Obama in 2010. But the problem for Biden is he's got weakness in his base and he has inflamed the other base and the, other, and the Republican Party has learned to, for the moment, kind of finesse its Donald Trump challenges, although they're not fully finessed, but... And, and learn to, uh, as we talked about with the school issue, uh, leverage existing debates into something that fires all of the existing buttons within the, the Republican Party. The idea that people are telling you what to do, whether it's with masks or what your kids study, and that gets to a real strong identity center for, for voters. So how do you combat that? It's really, really hard. The press has 
political scientists will tell you constantly, whether it's Republican George Herbert Walker Bush or Bill Clinton, constantly covers stories like inflation. It doesn't cover the story of, of employment. It covers employment when there are long lines, not when there aren't long lines. So you have a news cycle that is going to be working against the party in power because you can always do an inflation story. You can always do a story about gas prices. And even though gas prices are rising because of Ukraine, it hurts the president. So what can Biden do? Um, the best they can do is when fighting on turf that should be good for them is to uh, be at their most excellent. And the education debate is a perfect example. You know, the Republicans have turned it into a culture war turf. A talented politician could say, all right, you want to talk about education? Fine, let's talk about education. And then, because they've been studying the issue and caring about it their whole life, say things that connect with their core beliefs and all of their experience that will change the minds of voters. And they will presumably, because this is supposedly a democratic issue, show passion and concern that's attractive to voters and have a series of things at their hand because they've been studying this their whole life that will win them individual debates with Republicans. But we don't really see that happening. Yeah, I mean, Josie, what we're seeing is almost the opposite. You talked in the last segment about these culture war issues. They they seem particularly valuable to Republicans because they are peeling off suburbanites and women from Democrats at huge numbers. Women who you might expect to have been galvanized, say, by the assault on abortion rights, instead peeling away from Democrats in numbers that Democrats should be terrified about. Yeah, you know, to to your point, I think that maybe this is just me being too positive, right? But I hope that seven months is a lot of time or what nine months is a lot of time, especially in kind of this political climate. I mean, you think back nine months ago, the a lot of these issues I wasn't even really hearing about. There certainly weren't as many people mad about masks in schools. There certainly weren't people talking about CRT uh, as much as they are right now. Or you think nine months before the 2020 election, right, there wasn't even COVID. All of the kind of things that like actually end up shaking, shaping people's decisions at the polls, a lot could happen between now and, and, and November. And a lot will happen. We know there will be an abortion decision before then, right? And what, what will that do? What, who will that galvanize? What will that do politically? I don't know. But Biden, uh, he's facing a lot of stuff that I don't know how much he can do about it. Like, it's just, it's a little bit out of his control, right? I mean, when we talk about supply chain or inflation, like that's, that is just so much of that is just what a president has to weather. And it, it, I think it is a real reminder that we put a lot of stock into personality and kind of presidential decisions for, for good reason, right? But a lot of what, I mean, look at Donald Trump, a lot of what shaped his um, defeat at the polls was was COVID. That, he didn't invent COVID. I mean, he could have handled it a lot better. But it's that's just to say that like, the waves that come in, to a president, all of what they have to face it's so difficult to kind of shape a public opinion to to tell them I am in control here and I'm not in control there. People don't really seem to understand those nuances a lot of time. John, where do you think we are in the Trump, no Trump in 22 debate? There's a story this week about Mitch McConnell, Senate Republican leader, trying to recruit Trump skeptical Republicans or Trump uh, certainly not Trumpist Republicans to run for Senate. Doug Ducey in Arizona against Mark Kelly tried to get Larry Hogan to run in Maryland. Seems like Larry Hogan will not run in Maryland. Is there any evidence that that McConnell's desire to separate the party to move the party past Trump is is effective? 
he's trying to get Ducey in Arizona because Blake Masters, who appears to be has a lot of money and and might be the Republican nominee, is more uh, is a Trumpist. I mean, he thinks that Trump won in twenty twenty, so he is on the nutty fringe. And if these are um, well, you can't you, call them the nutty fringe. That's not the say, nutty fringe anymore. Correct. That's the right, the center right. of the Republican Party. No, I was just going to correct myself. That's what we're. This question is whether, as Andy Card says, the fringe has become the rug. Um, and so, so I was quickly going to correct myself. You're you're quite right. It's not the fringe, and that's the point. So anyway, McConnell in these states where it's going to be close, you can't. You you need the base, but the the, the Yunkin model is the one you want if you're Republicans. You want somebody who nods to the MAGA voters, doesn't offend them, but also then doesn't drive away suburban women voters, and particularly against a candidate like Ke- um, Kelly, who is um, you know is an attractive Democrat. He's he's an incumbent, even though a light one, because he hasn't been in office long. The challenge is where does Donald Trump? assert and that what kind of control does he have over the Republican Party? A recent CBS poll said 69% of Republicans said they want Trump to run again in 2024. I mentioned this last week, but I mean, and I wrote about this in The Atlantic. So you have the leader of a party who has been by the leader, every other leader in the party has been judged to have failed at his job, particularly with respect to January 6th. And yet he's the far and away front runner of the party. So he still controls the kind of heart of the party. But he's never had a very good record endorsing people. And he often endorses candidates, Roy Moore in Alabama would be a good example, who end up losing. So I guess my point is, he may not have very much skill or swag in terms of endorsing Republicans who can be successful, but he still controls the heart of the party and all the things people must do and claim to be kind of in his party, that all still is is true. I think the Houston Chronicle surveyed 140-some-odd Republicans running for Congress in the state, and only 13 said Joe Biden <gasps> won. That exists wow. because of Donald Trump. Right. Mitch McConnell can't break that. And what will be fascinating to watch is if the Senate and House go back to the Republican Party, whether that success, regardless of who wins, ends up creating a kind of party that has Trump as its energy and heart in the middle, but regains control. And therefore, to the people not obsessed with politics, they think, oh, well, they regain control, they must represent the nation, even though at the heart and core of the party will be these ideas that are detached from reality about the 2020 election. This gets to something that I've been thinking about, which is that, that McConnell can succeed in recruiting a Doug Ducey, or you can have a, a Lisa Murkowski or John Thune, who were, you know, basically standard issue conservative Republicans of an old stripe, uh, Mitt Romney, and they can you can win Senate races in these states where you need to get some moderate votes and you need Democratic votes. But it is it's impossible right now for me to imagine a national candidate, a candidate who could compete in a presidential race who isn't Trump or who isn't just as arsonous and destructive what, as oh, Trump. Yeah. And I was going to say, what about Ron DeSantis? But then uh, that, yeah, Ron DeSantis, maybe Ron DeSantis, but I don't. It's just like that. There's there's no space for someone reasonable. who is there's no space for someone who's reasonable in a in a kind of like 1999 mm-hmm. way or to even a 2011 way in the Republican Party at a national level, and that's what's so worrisome to me. Yeah, I mean, there's really nobody. There are very few candidates who are willing to endorse democracy as a concept at this point. Josie, do you think that the state investigations of Trump that are happening in various in New York and Georgia, as well as the fact that Trump's accountants abandoned him this week, 
could weaken him at all? Or is this all at this point, are there no actual facts about him that that could shake his grip on the party? No, I don't think they'll weaken him at all. And in fact, I think what they'll probably do is cause less trust in the system, right? They'll weaken trust in the system more than they'll weaken trust in him. And this lack of belief in kind of our basic institutions, not just skepticism, but belief, right, at all, is largely a product of him and his movement, although it builds on years of attempts to do that. But but I think it also is just another point. Like this man is, I think the only thing that weakened Donald Trump in the past since the election is being kicked off Twitter. I mean, that's it. Just not hearing his voice 24-7, I think, has probably been the only thing to weaken him. I don't think any sort of moral, ethical, financial, political consequences do anything but strengthen him among the people that support him. Families of Sandy Hook victims agreed to a settlement of $73 million from Remington, the arms manufacturer, and its insurers this past week. There is a very broad federal protection for gun manufacturers against lawsuits that arise from criminal misuse of a weapon. There's a Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, which is a bill passed, I think, during the W. Bush presidency, um, that really means if you are a gun manufacturer and your weapon is used in, in some fashion for a crime, uh, you it's almost impossible to hold you liable. But the families uh, in the Sandy Hook case found a small keyhole, a small exception in the law that allows liability if the company violated state law in particular ways, and they claimed that Remington had violated the consumer laws of Connecticut and how they marketed the AR-15-style weapon that was used in that in that massacre. And that the, the pressure of that compelled the, the company and its insurers to settle this case. So, Josie, does this represent some sort of new landmark in gun litigation, or is this just like, well, this is a nice small victory, and it's good that the Sandy Hook families who've been suffered so much um, had their had this at least recognized and that Remington had to pay a small price, but that it's not going to it's not going to fundamentally change the protection that arms manufacturers feel. I think maybe both in one way. Right. It's it's definitely a landmark in that it's the first time a gun manufacturer has been held liable in a case like this, which is which matters. But on the other hand, I think that uh, I think it's a tough case to make in most shootings, right? I mean, the nature of guns is that when they cause a lot of harm, they're doing exactly what they are designed to do. It's not your car exploding or something or you didn't expect it to happen. Our, our general unwillingness up until this point, I mean, our complete unwillingness up until this point to limit gun, gun manufacturing, to hold gun manufacturers responsible has meant that even if we didn't make any more guns tomorrow, there are so many guns here in this country, that we are already fighting, I, I think, an inherently losing battle if our goal is to actually limit the, the number of actual firearms that, that are in America. So I, I do think it's a really big deal. I mean, the Sandy Hook families, when you think back to 10 years this year of, of children, kids, I mean, it was just so devastating, traumatic for, I think, everybody in the country. But I don't know how sustainable this is moving forward. And most cases are not Sandy Hook, right? Most cases are a man killing his wife or, a, you know, a, a mass murder of four people in his family or something, right? It just doesn't usually look – it's not usually this sympathetic. John, why have we moved 
so hard. I think when, when we were in our 20s, you would have guessed, if I, I would have made a bet, there would have been some significant movement in in limits on gun ownership and tracking who has guns and certainly in child protection and and having to secure guns. And there has been movement on these laws. 30 something states have them and they've been very effective. And you would, but you would think there would be more movement towards more aggressive laws, given how successful they've been at reducing child access to guns and suicides and accidental deaths. Yeah. I mean, you used to have people who ran Democrats who ran on the idea of requiring a gun license to own a gun Hillary Clinton, I believe, uh, once believed that, but nobody in the Democratic Party would ever, I mean, would say that. You see Beto O'Rourke reversing his very uh, pro-gun control position as he tries to run for governor in Texas, the, the position he held when he was running for president. I was, I'm not, I, I guess I would throw this uh, wild sally out there, David, and I don't know whether it stands up. But one thing is that, so you had very high support for gun control in the 80s and early 90s, when gun ownership or gun activity was related to high crime. So it's still the case, as Josie mentioned, 60% of or 59%, according to Pew, of gun murders are committed by handguns. Only 3% are committed by, quote unquote, assault style weapons. So the, the vast majority of the 45,000 gun deaths in 2020 happened in non-school shooting type events. So in the 90s, the, the support for stricter gun laws was close to 80%. And it has basically been steadily dropping. And then it went up again after the Parkland shootings, where it rose again to the highest it had been since 1983. And now it is at the support for stricter gun laws is the lowest it's been since 2014. It's at 52%. And uh, only 20% of Americans believe in a handgun ban, which used to be a much more popular position. So Part of it is the success of the gun lobby. Part of it is the success of guns becoming a cultural issue that is a vector for lots of other kinds of issues. I mean, if we think of masks, guns were masks long before masks were an issue, where it's a signaling and it's associated with identity, even if you don't own a gun. And I wonder if the courts are really the only place it's gonna you're going to be able to make the kinds of headway that people want, who want... Um, to see stricter gun laws. The Supreme Court, I mean, yeah. the Supreme Court is moving towards the gun the gun rights, the 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 no restrictions on gun positions. Yeah. Uh, much more than it than the opposite. Yes, I mean, the Supreme Court is certainly not going to uh, be the body that actually imparts real restrictions on gun ownership, but I would say that another reason for the shift in public opinion on guns is a lack of faith in our justice system and our legal system to actually apply such restrictions fairly. So one of the things that I really grapple with is uh, I, I, hate, I hate guns. And I also know that the more that we criminalize gun ownership and we restrict gun ownership, I know who that falls on. It falls on black people, brown people, and poor people. Uh, and it doesn't actually do much for the people who own the most guns in this country, which don't look like that, right? And so I struggle with how do you actually change public opinion on this without also endorsing some of the systems that we know are unfair and ill-equipped to actually handle an issue this big. To me, this is the ultimate 
the ultimate issue that isn't fixed by policy, it's fixed by culture. I don't know how you get at guns without reducing the the cultural dependence on guns, the cultural significance of guns. I just don't, I don't know. To your point about how people used to feel about guns, I mean, they're, they're not just practical, right? They're cultural. They are like, symbol. they symbolize all this stuff. They're used for fun. Like people like to hunt. You know, my husband went to a gun range. My hippie LA husband went to a gun range and was like, that was fun. You know, I think uh, like it is, um, he's going to be mad. I called him a hippie on, but he is a little bit more <laughs> of a hippie. Um, I, but I think that like what we are trying to do as per, on the left is skip past the cultural stuff and try to fix this with policy. And I just don't think that's going to happen. Do you think there are any areas of agreement? I mean, I keep coming back to, I mean, it's clear like, oh, background checks, limits on assault rifles, limits on magazine size. They're not going to go anywhere. That's not, none of that's going to happen at the federal level. There is the one piece, which I keep feeling like there must be help, which is nobody, when a kid gets hold of a gun and shoots a friend, shoots themselves, shoots a parent, uh, by accident, usually by accident. Like we can all agree, this is this is this is not how it's supposed to be. And is there any? Even people who love guns want guns to be safe. Yeah, uh, I think is there, there is any that. hope that these these this this limiting you know access to children, making it harder for children to get it, holding people responsible if children do get access to guns and cause harm with them, either accidentally or on purpose. Is that a hope? Yeah. That feels to me like there's a small space. I will say that um, a, a good friend of mine's um, husband is a big gun enthusiast, and, and their kids have guns, and they're young. They're, like, uh, I think the youngest is four, and he he this child has used a gun but they're huge on keeping guns safe the gun isn't laying around on the kid's side table do what i is my, would i ever have my four-year-old have a gun absolutely not that might just be in part because of my four-year-old's personality but you know i don't really trust him to be handling a gun or any four-year-olds but i do appreciate the fact that they are very serious about gun safety. And so often, especially with kids, that's what happens. You know, you forget to lock your gun up or you don't have it locked up safely. You don't understand what your kids are capable of. So I think that like there is a sense among everybody that when their three-year-old, you know, when it gets their hand on a gun and shoots someone, someone wasn't doing their job. You know, David, when you were talking about the areas of common ground, despite the fact that Gallup shows that 52% of the country wants stricter gun laws, which is low, other polls show that 80 some odd support, 80 some odd percent support, including massive amounts of Republican support, background checks. So then you have public sentiment for stricter gun laws, um, but you don't have the political sentiment. So that's the problem is the public's not the voting public. That's where you have that disconnect. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you are back from the pleasant school board meeting. <laughs> relaxing school board meeting, just want to unwind with a small snifter of brandy. What will you be chattering about, John Dickerson? I don't think you've, you've passed the age of going to school board meetings. You are definitely not going to any school board meetings at your at your age. Yeah, no, that's why I just went to um, shed a tear my last high school performance of Comedy of Errors, which was um, excellent. The acting, the directing, it was fantastic, but it was the last thing I'll... Uh, so that was that was sad. It wasn't a school board meeting, but it was a great moment of um, school community getting together. 
My chatter is about uh, an amazing job that the Washington Post reporters did, going back to my uh, question about the fitness of Donald Trump. Um, if you look at what he did on the on the 6th of January, it was a failure in three acts. So he incited the the mob. Then when they were storming the Capitol, he did nothing when his job would compel him to do something. And then after it was all over, he did nothing to repair. So it's a failure in three acts. The Washington Post has an excellent rundown of the texts during Act Two, when members of the Freedom Caucus in the House, when Fox News pundits, when members of the president's family were all texting Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, imploring him to do anything he could to convince the commander in chief to bestir himself to engage with his job, which was which is helping to protect the Constitution and public safety, and how the level of pleading and Obviously, he didn't do anything for a long time. And it's just beautifully laid out both visually, but then also just in the, in the, in the reporting and the accumulation of these texts. So it's a great use of digital journalism, but also quite a damning portrait of this moment when the president had a clear, obvious job to do and refused to do it despite the pleading of those most intimate and close with him. Josie Duffy writes, what's your chatter? I read a book recently called The School for Good Mothers that came out last month. It's by Jessamine Chan. It's her uh, debut novel. And it is a sort of futuristic, dystopian story about a mother who loses custody of her child. It deals with like the child protective services and I think really is a great analysis of how the government can get inappropriately involved in people's uh, family life. But it's also just so devastating. When it was when I finished, it, it was five in the morning, and I was sobbing, sobbing. Uh, where, like I have not cried that hard in years. And my husband woke up and thought someone had died or something terrible had happened, and I I was just like I finished the book. Um, it's it's just it is really 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 well done. I have not stopped thinking about it, and I also think it's very uh, relevant to a lot of what we see parents, especially poor black and brown parents, go through right now in America. Um, so I highly recommend. Wow. That's that great. A, that's a strong recommendation. Yes. Wake up at 5 a.m. Be up at, up till yeah. 5 a.m. weeping. Um. <laughs> You'll enjoy it also, you know. It's good. My chatter is kind of, my chatter is kind of a follow-up to our Slate Plus last week, which is, a, you know, what is a sport, what is not a sport. And so I've been watching the Winter Olympics, which I loathe. It's terrible. So much of it is terrible. But I've ended up... Um, Watching endless hours of curling, <laughs> curling. I watched. I've watched so much curling. I've watched more curling this past week than I've watched of all the other Olympic sports put together. And it actually turns out it's it's so it's sort of like ice golf. It's very slow, relaxing, extremely precise. Kind of has a cutthroat quality to it that you don't appreciate. But the reason it's appealing, I realize, is that it's it's an actual team versus team competition. It's always it's these teams of four people who are just like right up against each other, just fighting it out. They are in each other's face. You can listen to them talk. You get to hear their strategy. You see their faces. Unlike so much of these these Winter Olympic sports, everyone's covered with these safety helmets because that's what they're doing. It has its own very rich language: the, the hammer, a hog line, hack weight, shot rock. Uh, that really puts the stone on the button. Uh, on the button, it's it is just a it's a very um, 
it's very compelling television, despite it being slow and tedious and just, you know, shuffleboard with uh, housekeeping uh, and ice. It's, 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 it's been enthralling to watch. So I recommend oh. watching curling. And the U.S. has this great charismatic ma- men's team led by a guy named John Schuster, who looks like he's about 60, but turns out he's only 39. Uh, check it out. Listeners, you sent us a whole raft, a whole boatload of great chatters this week. You emailed them to us at gabfest at slate.com. And you tweeted them to us at, at @slategabfest. And there are so many really great ones uh, to choose from. And the one that we're going to hear from today is from Paul Hebing. Hello, GabFest. This is Paul Hebing from Memphis, Tennessee. And this week's listener chatter is both a revisit to that faraway time when the internet was good and nice and a romantic detective story. On the Wikipedia entry for High Five, a.k.a. Slapping Hands or Up High, there is a section on the Too Slow variation with a detailed description of the maneuver accompanied by hastily shot photos of a man and woman gleefully performing it. The photos and their hilariously perfunctory captions have tickled Wikipedia readers since 2008, so much so that author Annie Rewerda set out to find what became of that high-fiving couple. Her internet sleuthing and various discoveries are charmingly delightful and will surely leave you smiling with finger guns. It's super fun, super charming story. Definitely check this out. Check the story out. It's an input magazine. Just it'll it also cheer you up. It's very it's got a nice uh, happy ending too. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcast. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet chatter to us there. And also email us chatter your chatter at gabfest at slate.com. For John Dickerson and the always delightful Josie Duffy Rice, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? I can't, I don't know where this idea came from. It was just Jocelyn. an idea that, it was a, it's a Joss idea? Okay, well, like all, like all good ideas, it comes from Joss. So Jocelyn's great idea is about hiding. And I don't know why this somehow struck all of us, but it, it's kind of the question of where did you hide as a kid? Why did you hide? Where do you hide now? And uh, what's the purpose of hiding? Anyone want to kick us off? You guys are both hiding. Ah! I'll start. So um, I was thinking about this and I realized, so I grew up in a house which actually had lots of nooks and crannies in it. Uh, But I realized that I myself am not a hider. I hid, I played a lot of hiding games. So we played massive neighborhood wide games of kick the can where you'd have to hide like usually behind the drains house um, or hide and seek in the house. But I didn't go, my way of hiding I realized has always been motion that when I am in distress or I need think or I need quiet is I seek motion. And so I hide by moving through the places, not by, not by holding up in a single place. Um, so my therapy, my, my hiding therapy is motion. So I had an answer, but this is such a revelation that you've given me, (laughs) but now I have a new answer, which is you're so right. I've, I do the exact same thing with running. And what, it, what I realized as you were talking is it's not just hiding from other people or the world, but it's also there are ways in which you can hide from yourself. So we were talking about this with rock climbing where you can't – it's impossible to rock climb and think about something else. And 
often what pins us down and leaves us wriggling uh, is our own brains. And so if you can go hide from yourself, that seems to be what running does and what you just described, David, which I love. I will talk about where I hide for other circumstances after Josie weighs in. Yeah, well, now I'm thinking this through because I was also thinking I wasn't really a hider. But I think my form of hiding now is temporal in the sense that I stay up later than everybody in my house always. Part of that is insomnia, but part of it is I love the feeling of all the lights in the house being out and everybody being asleep and just me getting to, you know, think through or deal with whatever is going on in my head or do some work or whatever it is. I truly feel that my best hours are like 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. brain-wise. But part of that, I think, is sort of the hiding element of just getting to be alone. Question. Question, Ms. Rice. Yes. Ms. Duffy Rice. Do you... (laughs) Is it... Do you do things or do you, is it all does it all take place? You sit quietly in a or do you like do you patter around the house, get some ice cream? I sometimes read. I sometimes read. I definitely get ice cream, but I will eat ice cream at any time of day. So that is not hiding specific. I definitely If you liked that little bit, that was just a taste of the cornucopia of glory that will come from this Slate Plus segment. So become a member of Slate Plus today and get all of it. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 